You're listening to Wood Talk Online with your hosts, Mark and Matt. Take it away, boys. Hey, welcome to Wood Talk Online, episode number seven, a podcast for woodworkers by woodworkers. That's right, Matt. Now, if you have a woodworking question, you can email us at woodtalkonline at gmail.com. And we just recently added a new feature to the website where you can actually leave a voicemail for yes, us. Yes, we did. <laughs> so that's really cool. That's going to save us some time, and it's a good way for you guys to hear your own voice on uh, the Internet. So that's that's kind of neat. Uh, but basically, it's a very simple system. It's embedded into the website. All you need is a microphone and your computer and your Internet connection. There's no software to install, nothing to download. As long as your mic is hooked up, it'll engage the mic, and you could just leave a message. You could preview it before you actually send it. Uh, you could add a little text excerpt if you want to, and that will be emailed directly to us, and we'll be able to play it on the show. Absolutely. Man, I would only wish uh, the uh, recording software that we use for these podcasts was that easy. <laughs> yeah, it seems to be this whole convoluted thing that I've got to do here to get these uh, our voices synced up, and uh, it, it's, it's a mess, but uh, I would have it no other way. Absolutely, absolutely keeps me <laughs> keeps me going for a while. Yeah, so there's exactly. no reason in the world anybody else can't get us voicemails now. You have no excuse, people. No excuses. Yes, some good voicemails. We have one today, so we'll we'll save that for later. But uh, we definitely want to. I want at least four to fifteen by next week, yep. somewhere in that range. That works, and and not the same person, not the uh, same person. Please, not the same person. <laughs> that gets annoying. Okay, so anyway, uh, Matt, I wanted to ask you. I've been looking at your podcast lately, and I saw you had a recent video podcast on the uh, the router bit of the month, and I thought you might want to tell us a little bit about that, and maybe even just mention a little bit about that particular bit that uh, that you reviewed. Absolutely. Yeah, I had a great opportunity to find folks over at Woodcraft and then also in conjunction with the fine folks over at Whiteside Machine Company really came through for me and the listeners and everybody that you know is interested in all in checking this out. And we're going to try something new, which is obviously router bit of the month. And they, uh, if you're not familiar with it, Woodcraft highlights a particular router bit from Whiteside Machine Company. They feel you know that this is a great one to check out. It's a fantastic one to throw in your collection of router bits. And, you know, maybe it's one you haven't even heard of before. So what we're trying to do is put together a, uh, a video each month where essentially that one gets highlighted. And the really great thing about it is not only do I get to try it, but they, they give me another one to actually give away to a lucky uh, listener. That's awesome. So that's, it is. It's fantastic. You know, it's an opportunity for so many of us who maybe, you know, might be interested in trying out the particular router bit that is being highlighted. But, you know, just, I don't know, for, you know, for money reasons or whatever reason, we can't really think of a project to do with it. Trying to come up with like ideas each month to with the, this particular router bit to essentially highlight what it is you do with it. You know, there there are, there's there's a ton of router bits out there when it really comes down to it. Well, that's kind of the problem with it is there's so many awesome profiles, and you would say, oh, I'd love to have it in my collection, but chances are you may use it, you know, what once every couple of months, but you still would love to own it. It's it's hard to just drop. 30 or 40 bucks on a, on a bit like that that isn't going to be used constantly. So it's a great opportunity for people. Yes, it really is. Yeah. And then, you know, and then sometimes even uh, the, the profile, like you said, you know, it, it might be only use it once or twice or anything like that. And, or it could just be one of those you're like, I just don't see where that's going to be useful. So again, I should give you some tips on it and stuff like that. And we'll go from there. Another neat thing is these the particular router bits that are coming from Whiteside Machine Company, these are carbide-tipped uh, router bits, so you know that they're going to last. Uh, short of basically, I guess, trying to profile cement or something, uh, you're really gonna, <laughs> you're not going to have to worry about the sharpening for a while on these. They, and there's some really nice, hefty ones. This particular one this month that they sent me is their classic pattern profile. 
and it has a little bit of a it's a um an OG or excuse me yeah like it's a it's a cove with a roundover that's what it is i keep getting these all mixed up but essentially it's a it's a cove with a roundover and it it just the 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 actual pattern once you get going with it it looks really neat i think the 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 that actual if you think about it they're opposites of each other the roundover and the cove right and you know you you could essentially and i, I try to point this out in the video you could essentially try to do this with two separate router bits but you i don't there's no way in the world i think you'd get the same effect yeah that'd be pretty tricky yeah, that's what. In fact, actually, it was one, at one point I was like, "Well, let's see if I could do it." No, I can't. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, it is. It's a. It's a gorgeous profile, though. I mean, that that's something. Oh, I yeah. would love to see on on a tabletop or uh, even just a decorative piece of trim that you're building up. Absolutely, yeah, and it, it, it's a it's a nice uh, thick side thick size. It works great, and like I said, with that being carbide tipped, it's definitely going to last a long time. And you know, it, the uh, the actual bit or the bearing on it itself, like it, like I had mentioned in the video, I, I had done a few practice runs with it, and I really caked it with sawdust quite a bit, and that bearing kept on spinning like it was brand new. So that's a nice feature because I don't know how many times you've had a bearing that just kind of caked up on you, and yeah. you know, not so nice. To lock up. No, definitely not. Well, that's good, man. I'm I'm glad yeah. to hear it. Yeah. Um, I wanted to quickly talk about a topic that actually I just got the email today from uh, from a good uh, uh, well he's not a friend I guess he's an internet friend Paul um, okay. <laughs> he actually asked me a question about something I had said in a previous episode um, in one of my podcasts actually I had mentioned the concept of relative dimensioning and unfortunately I haven't had the opportunity within a podcast to go over what what that is and what I mean by that um, mm -hmm. so I figured now might be a good time to talk about it a little bit. Um, first off, just to sort of uh, set up the scenario in the situation, when you're building a piece of furniture, and let's say I, usually the easiest thing to compare it to is sizing up a drawer to fit into a drawer opening. Where, where relative dimensioning comes in is instead of actually building the drawer and then, you know, on paper you have all your numbers written down, so you cut all your parts ahead of time, you build your drawer, you build your case for the drawer, and you see if it fits when it's all done. Um, that is not relative dimensioning. That's just okay. that's just following a plan, and this is where plans kind of are hard to you know to 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 go along with. And, and if you are the type of person who who likes to do the relative dimensioning technique, plans are a, a little bit tougher to work with because all those numbers are out there ahead of time. So I don't want to get too too confusing with it. But the point is, you know, the concept with relative dimensioning is simply cutting things to fit as opposed to cutting them to a specific number because that number may not always be correct. So if you have a cumulative error that starts at the beginning of a project, by the time you get to the end, although it says on paper it should be 16 inches, it may be an eighth of an inch short of that. So if you've cut all of your, your pieces ahead of time, you may wind up in a bind at the end where something doesn't fit properly. So the concept of relative dimensioning is just very simply cutting your parts to fit the parts that are already established in the piece. Okay. So nice. is that I mean when when you do your furniture and let's say you're following a plan, you you know it, it can be very dangerous to cut all those parts ahead of time. Um, mm -hmm. Even though it's tempting because they give you a nice cut list, so you mill it all down. You can do that, but I would definitely urge you to cut everything oversized and then start you know assembling your pieces together. And once you have something locked down, like a case, you know if you're building a cabinet or something, once the case is locked down, well now you have your your absolute numbers that you can use to take a measurement and cut the door or a drawer or something to fit. Um, but don't cut all your parts to size ahead of time because you will almost always wind up being you know bitten yes. 
Oh yeah, I, I've I've been stung by that so many times. I, it's it's just yeah, I call that I, my oh oh I can't say that word. Nope. But <laughs> well, I I just said uh, I just said ass, so I don't know. What okay, well, my, my well mine has something to do with the ass. It's oh, there the, you go. Uh, <laughs> there you go. Exactly, Poo-poo. it's the stuff that was in the pool with the baby Ruth kind of thing. There you but, go. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, so I mean, the 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 thing is, the idea is to stop using your tape measure as much. Mm-hmm. I mean, I use my tape measure for the very beginning of the project. And then after that point, generally, I mean, really, I don't pick it up other than for quick reference. Um, everything is, is cut to fit, and you will wind up with much better fitting parts if you do that. Oh, absolutely. You know, it, it's nice to be able to think that from the moment we start working on these projects that everything is going to work out perfect. It's going to be like a jigsaw puzzle, and everything is going to come together perfectly ahead of time and everything else. Right. But you're absolutely right. So, yeah, it's wonderful. When you started talking about relative dimensioning, I was suddenly thinking of Einstein and, and EM equals FC yeah, squared. It but. sounds a lot <laughs> fancier than it really is. It's just a, a fancy term for, uh, you know, just cutting parts to fit. Exactly. Um, so another uh, another little topic I wanted to cover was uh, favorite finishes. Um, I get that question a lot, and it's kind of tough to answer because you know once you really get some hands on with a lot of the different finishes, it's hard to really have a favorite because they all have their purposes. You know, depending on what piece of furniture is or what what you've mm-hmm. built and uh, where it's going to go, and just there's a lot of factors that determine what the best finish for that piece will be. So it's hard to have a favorite. Um, but I would say that if I did have a favorite, I like the good old, you know, wiping varnish formulations and the oil varnish mixtures. Um, I think those are great. I think you can quickly build up a nice protective layer without actually getting a very thick plasticky, uh, look on the surface. It's a very close to the wood finish. And if you ever Mm -hmm. need to renew it years down the line, it's, it's relatively easy to renew, um, what, what would you say if you had to pick a favorite, what would you say would be your favorite finish? Oh, this is going to be really embarrassing. I've never really moved much further than just simple polyurethane. Almost okay. everything I have, if I can't put polyurethane on it, well, then you're getting the natural protective hope to God it doesn't stain <laughs> anything. Um, yeah, I've tried, I really, I've been, I have been meaning to expand out quite a bit, but that's the way, so far, that's, that's the only thing I've really ever used as any type of like, uh, any type of real top coat or anything. Right. You know, other than just simple stain, um, sure, sure. You know that that kind of thing. I I I, just, I really hate to admit it, but it's like one of those. I I need to branch out. <laughs> well, you know, honestly, there's nothing wrong with that. Just I mean, simply because that's I think how a lot of us start. We we all sort of when we get into it, we know what polyurethane is. Mm-hmm. Uh, we hear the word varnish, and things get a you know we've we know what varnish is sort of, and then people get confused on what's the difference and is are they the same thing and we don't realize that varnish is just you know polyurethane is a type of varnish um you know and it just seems to be the most logical thing to do is just go to what you are familiar with so polyurethane works just fine exactly Um, but yeah i mean i honestly recall having a little bit of an issue breaking away from uh the wiping polyurethane i found that to be a really quick and easy finish um, and then when I started to hear about shellac and lacquer and all these different things, I, it's pretty intimidating to actually make that jump. Uh, but it's well worth it. I, I, I highly recommend experimenting a little bit and seeing what else is out there. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's intimidating is not the word for it. There's been a couple of times I've walked past them in the aisle and been like, oh, you <laughs> evil. Keep walking. Keep walking. Stay there. Don't make eye contact. No eye contact. <laughs> exactly. They they can smell fear. <laughs> yeah. Well, I just wanted to um since since the you know polyurethane and wiping varnish uh, finishes 
are so popular, um, and I would think amongst hobbyists, it might even be the most popular type of finish. Um, I, I just wanted to mention a video that I saw on Fine Woodworking's website. Now, it's a subscription-based video, so you have to have a subscription there to see it. But it was a quick video by Andy Ray, and he was describing a top coat method using uh, this really special mixture. And this is, this is of course, now after you've added about three or four coats of a wipe-on polyurethane or okay. a, a wipe-on varnish. Um, so you've got to that point where you have it nice and sealed and... You know, this works best for a wood that tends to have a little bit of a, you know, maybe there's some open grain uh, that as you layer on a couple layers of poly um, or varnish, it sort of still just follows those uh, those grain pores and things. So, um, you know, you don't have a completely glass smooth surface when it's all said and done, even though it's smooth, it's not, you know, glass smooth. So mm-hmm. he has this method of actually filling those pores um, which technically by now you're filling the pores in the finish, not necessarily the wood. The wood is coated, but the coating just followed the contours. So this mixture that he has is one part boiled linseed oil, a half part varnish, a quick drying varnish, and a half part pore filler. Okay. So now, I, of course, I've used pore filler before, and I've used it on you know just one coat sealed wood or raw wood, but I was mm-hmm. trying to think like, wow, okay, so now he's going to layer this stuff on top, and it's mixed in with the finish like that. That's really kind of unique. I've never heard of that before. And mm. uh, watched him do it, and his method is you just wipe it over the surface and uh, sort of you know make sure you go in circular motion so you're really making sure you're digging it into any imperfections in the surface. Let it dry for about 15, 20 minutes and come back with some uh, clean cloths, uh, cotton cloths, and, and wipe the whole surface down. And he, he claims that it's a, a glass smooth, perfect finish. So it's very unique. I'm definitely going to uh, to have to give that a shot. Uh, wow. I, I was just intrigued by the fact that he put a pore filler, which is usually like a gray or brown gritty substance, into the clear finish and still wound up with a nice, you know, clear, smooth, gorgeous finish when it was all said and done. You know, it's kind of funny because um, a long time ago, I was at a, I, I stopped by a, a lumber dealer that I always go to here uh, in Michigan, and they were having kind of a, a woodworking show, and I didn't realize that I showed up like, you know, just before it was going to start, and there was a, a gentleman, an old guy that started kind of following me around, and he had something similar. He was talking about putting pore filler and stuff like that, but I wish I'd have paid more attention because yeah. I was just kind of like, no, no, I'm just here for lumber. No, leave me alone. Go away. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. So I, mean, well, I guess you can learn. <laughs> clearly, there's a lot of uh, unique things, and, you know, you got to do is have a little bit of creativity and think outside the box, and I'm sure you can come up with some really cool ideas. Absolutely. I, I didn't realize Andy Ray did st- I mean, I know Andy Ray's got quite a bit of stuff out there. He's the one that I always have mentioned over and over my podcast. Uh, the um, I always go to him for my information on, on hand tools because he has a great book out called Choosing and Using Hand Tools. Oh, okay. And so, you know, I'd say, I mean, I just, I hate to say it, but it's like, I guess assumptions, you know what that does, makes ass out of you and me, but uh, (laughs) I assume that he, uh, he only did hand tools, but wow, that's kind of cool. I have to go check that video out. Yeah, definitely. It's very good. And, and I would suggest for anybody who is so inclined, uh, I do think it is worth it for the subscription for finewoodworking.com. Um, I've had it for a while now and I sort of, cause I'm always logged in, I lose track of what is a subscription video and what is just free. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, but occasionally when I have to do something like this for the podcast, I go to, you know, get the video uh, link for people and then realize it's part of the subscription base. So it's, it's definitely something I'd recommend doing if you, uh, if you have the funds and you're uh, looking for some really, really good video content, uh, you'll find it there. Absolutely. Yeah. I I did the same thing. I have a subscription with it too. And I, I highly recommend it too. So that's, that's two thumbs up. 
Dos, dos thumbs up. So um, cool. I think we should move along to some emails and our very first ever voicemail. Sweet. Let's do it. Let's move on. Let's hear what uh, what Ski has to say. Guys, I'm looking for a drill press. Any thoughts, recommendation, features that I need? Is a laser really going to make a difference? Uh, you know, travel with travel length of the uh, drill going up and down, bench top model versus floor standing model. Uh, looking for some recommendations on uh, drill presses. All right, so Ski is asking about drill presses. So um, there's a few you know things he asked specifically about. So we'll try and address those. Um, for, first and foremost, really, this is just uh, I mean, to, let's go to the, the most simple part of this is the fact that it's just a bit spinning in circles that rides up and down. So, I mean, at the bare minimum, you can go to Harbor Freight and pick up a drill press and probably have no problems with it. I mean, who knows? Maybe it would break. I don't know. I don't use yeah. too much of their stuff. But the point is you'll get the job done and, and it would be fine. But if you're looking to step up the quality level and you want something that maybe, um, you know, obviously the travel as it goes down, if it's a lower quality tool, that may not be dead straight. Mm -hmm. um, you may have problems with the way the chuck is locked in and your bit may not actually spin uh, perfectly concentric to a point. It may wobble a little bit, um, you know, so there are going to be issues that, that separate the good from the bad. Um, but at its simplest, you know, uh, to look at it the simplest way, even the cheapest one will do the job. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so what, what do you have in your shop, Matt? Right now I have a, uh, a bench top model and I was really torn between the, the, the floor, the floor standing and right. the bench top, but the, the bench top just as of right now for space saving and for, for what I do with it, it works out, it works out fine for right now. Right. So, yeah, I've got the, uh, the bench top as well. It's the bench top, uh, variable speed Delta. And from my experience, to be honest, I have found no limitations in terms of the amount of working height and, and fitting something underneath it. Right. Um, obviously the floor standing, you could fit something pretty darn tall underneath it, but I have yet to find that as a limitation. So, I would say the biggest concern with floor standing versus bench top is space. If if you've got some bench space, go ahead and get the bench top. But if you're uh, hard pressed for bench space, the floor one not only will give you more capacity, but it's probably going to be the better you know choice for your uh, for your particular workshop. Absolutely. Um, but functionally, in you know the the two and a half three years that I've been in business, I've yet to come across a time that I said, ah, I really wish I had that floor standing one. Other than the fact of space consideration, right? You know, and even with my bench top one, I have noticed that it, as you mentioned, even with your shop, there's been that one time that at the absolute most you kind of wish you did. But with mine, I know you can actually kind of spin the head. I have a Ryobi, and you can kind of spin the head just a little bit to the side because I usually have it kind of off to the side of the of the uh, bench, and kind of one of those you know modify it just a little bit, probably not exactly what the manufacturer wants, but you can do it enough and rather safely that if it was a a, a tall piece that obviously one's going to fit on the on the on the bench top that I can kind of turn it and and be able to work with it and still get the same you know uh, the the same quality from it. So yeah, definitely. Cool. That makes sense. That's a good idea. Um, he also asked about travel and not really a whole lot to say about that. I think if you go with a reasonably good quality brand, um, the distance of travel and the quality of, of the, you know, the direction that it takes is probably not going mm -hmm. to be an issue. Um, laser 
is another thing. Obviously, a lot of new tools, they come with lasers. So, Oh, yes, they do. Everything's got a laser now. <laughs> yeah, and, and everything is better because of it. Mm -hmm. um, I would say, you know, for some tools like my sliding compound miter saw, I never used the laser. And I paid more for it, and I want to kick myself in the butt because <laughs> I did. Um, on a drill press, however... If you've got a cross-point laser that shows you the dead center position where that bit's going to come down, unless you've got a brad point bit or something, if you've got a regular standard bit in there, it is sometimes tricky to tell exactly where that sucker is going to come down at. So I, this is one of those cases where I actually do think that a laser would be a great feature to have. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, definitely. I can't tell you how many times I, I think that I've got it lined up exactly where I want it. Right. comes down, and it's and it's off just enough to have everything off. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so um, uh, I would say laser, cool, awesome, but definitely not necessary. Um, now let's talk about speed range. Obviously, you're going to go for a variable speed if, mm -hmm. uh, if you're getting into it. Um, I've seen quite a range of speeds. I've seen them as low as 200 and I think just quickly looking today, saw them as high as like 3,600 RPMs. Mm -hmm. So I would say as long as you have a range that's, you know, ballpark 400 to 3,000 RPMs, you're going to be pretty satisfied with it. Um, you do want to get that low end, though, because there's a lot of bits, uh, you know, certain Forstner bits that, that just work better at slower speeds. So you don't want to deny yourself, uh, you know, the slow speed aspect of it. Right. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, no, variable definitely has come in handy because, you know, sometimes even as woodworkers, we occasionally might have to work with metal or some other, yeah. you know, something like that. And so it's nice to be able to have that little uh, play in there, basically. Yeah, well, that's the last thing, especially if you're drilling metal. You don't want that thing spinning around and generating more heat than it has to. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, and that's pretty damn scary when when you're I don't know I, that that was I think I mentioned this before. That was my one of my only uh shop accidents I had was drilling metal. So oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't have very fond memories of it. So, uh, yes, nothing like a, a hot piece of metal flying at your yeah, eyes. <laughs> exactly. Um, well, I also wanted to mention, um, I mean, the thing is I don't want to get too much into brands. I mean, it, it, even, even crappy companies or what companies that have a reputation for making crappy tools can still make a good tool sometimes. So I don't mm -hmm. want to say anything about brand, uh, but I I will say what's on my wish list. Um, I've been drooling over the Powermatic PM twenty eight hundred. Have Have you seen that one? No, but it sounds impressive. <laughs> oh, doesn't it though? Um, it has the whole digital readout. It's got an expandable table that has two wings that could expand out for Ooh. you know just more space. Uh, of course, it's got the laser. And in fact, I think I was just looking today, Delta looks like they have a comparable unit that's coming out in uh, August. So okay. um, these new ones are just awesome looking. And I am in the market for a floor standing uh, press, like I said, because of space considerations, um, not necessarily because of function. Mm -hmm. uh, but these, you know, either of those units would rank very highly on my list of uh I really want that thing. So nice. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. <laughs> yeah, I almost inherited my grandfather's old uh, 1940s Sprunger Brothers, but uh, uh, I don't even want to go into that one. That's just the spare parts on trying to find anything for that. Mm -mm, yeah. Crazy. <laughs> well, you know, there are some old ones that are uh, pretty cool. I know uh, when I was working at, uh, at David's shop, uh, David Mark's shop, he has one that actually has a big uh, foot pedal at the bottom that controls the uh, travel. 
So oh, nice. <laughs> yeah, you can go two-handed on the workpiece, hold it, which is really more stable, um, and use your foot on this uh, this bar that actually lowers the the bit down into the work. And uh, I mean, and it would squeak, and it was like clearly this old <laughs> classic tool. But man, I, he wouldn't trade that for the world. It's awesome. Absolutely. All right, so uh, we have our next email up here, and this one is from Ron, Mark, and Matt. There, there always seems to seems to be a debate on alternating growth rings when gluing up panels, and I was curious what you guys thought about it. Thanks and keep up the good work. Okay, alternating growth rings. Now, I don't know. To me, this one, I, I've thought about it quite a bit, and I've, I've actually gone back and forth on this. There, there are projects where I'm like, okay, I've got to make sure it goes this way. I've got to make sure it goes that way. And then I even do the thing where I get to the end of the, the table, and I'll look at the glue up just to make sure that I can see which way the growth patterns are going. And in my experience, it's not like it's been years of experience here, I, I haven't had a piece yet where – where I chose not to alternate the the growth patterns, I haven't had a problem with the glue up or with it warping or anything, especially like, let's say it's for a tabletop nine times out of 10, the tabletop is going to have some sort of apron. Um, even when I did it with my, um, the trestle tables that I've made in the past, the, the way that the, the, the legs are attached to the actual tabletop have done a good job, a, a good enough job, to keep the tabletop nice and flat. So like I said, I, I haven't had an experience yet. Who knows, maybe a little bit further down the road once the wood actually has a chance to dry properly, uh, more has been affected by uh, moisture movement, you know, the cli- acclimatation. Uh, that's not right. Acclimation. <laughs> acclimation, thank there you. you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, acclimatizing. <laughs> yes, uh, English is uh, sometimes a second language. <laughs> right. But, you know, I haven't had a real problem with warping. Now, like I said, they it always seems like it depends on who you talk to goes back and forth. It seems like every other person will tell you that you have to alternate the growth rings. But in my experience, I haven't really been too concerned with it. In fact, it always seems to be like one of those, I'm more concerned with making sure that my, my faces match up both color and grain pattern more than I am, which direction they're going in. Yeah, I would totally agree with that. I mean, I haven't really paid that much attention to alternating growth rings. If if I think of it, I kind of do it, but I will not alternate growth rings at the expense of the face. You know, mm-hmm. to to, to uh, if it detracts from the way it looks, I'm going to put it so that it looks the best. Um, and, and the growth rings are sort of a, a secondary issue. Um, I don't really know how I feel about this because the theory is that if you put them all in the same orientation you're going to have one big cup if it decides to cup because they're all going to cup in the same direction. Right. When to me, in reality, what I think would happen is if each board is going to cup individually, you're going to have more of a um, uh, like a bumpy road, like a, a wash a washboard road kind of thing, as opposed to just a smooth, you know, upside down or sideways C or a frown or a smile or whatever. So it's hard to know. Truthfully, it's hard to know exactly what it's going to do. And I think if we were using good kiln-dried stock, the likelihood of us having to fight that over the course of time is pretty slim to begin with. So um, I don't see the bottom line is I don't think there's anything wrong with doing it. And if there is a theory, whether it's right or wrong or whatever, as long as it's uh, a, a belief that's held, it can't hurt to do it, you know, to alternate them just in case so mm-hmm. that they're, you know, each board opposes the board next to it. Uh, but, uh, if I think, like you said, if you've got the, the table legs and the apron are securing the top down, I would almost rather keep my growth rings all in the same direction 
And let's say so that you, if you're going to predict its movement over time, if it were left on its own and it decides to cup, it would cup up. Then I would, you know, I would put it in that orientation so that the aprons hold those ends down. Right. So that if it's if they are going to cup, they can't go anywhere because they're held down by the uh, the actual uh, apron clips there. So yeah, I, I mean, go for it if you want to, but. Uh, I'm still not 100% convinced that it really makes all that much difference. Right. And and it's just like with anything else. Wait a couple more years and then suddenly they'll tell you, that, you know, the opposite's true and then you'll come back. And I really just think it, it depends on, on who the woodworker is. <laughs> yeah. yeah <laughs> that kind of exactly. gets the idea going. And, so. and you know what? It's, the, it's, it's a, it's a organic material, you know, so there's no, nothing's going to be the same every single time. And then there's no absolutes. So, Yep. What may work for one person, it may not have anything to do with the person doing it. it may just be the material that they're using. So, yep. uh, you know. Yeah. I, so I really, yeah, it, it, it obviously it comes down to the, the end product. How is it going to look to me is more important than, than the rest of it. Because sure. it, especially with today's fasteners and everything else, we can, we can get it to stay in place. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know? um, all right. We can move on to the next one. We've got a, another email from David. Uh, also known as David. Oh, okay. I was thinking, he says, holy, he's from France. <laughs> no, he, I just, I, I elevated him to David. Oh. Um, enjoyed the discussion on jointers and their selection. Even enjoyed your video, the jointers jumping. But uh, one or two questions that I have always had on jointer selection are the following. He says, what's the difference between the lever and the wheel for table adjustment? Uh, he's always always thought that the wheel adjustment would be the more accurate of the two, uh, but he's never used a lever. Uh, once you get the outfeed table set to the right cut depth, why would you ever change it? Therefore, why make it easy to change? Uh, I could probably, I mean, this is relatively simple. Um, I would say that the difference between the wheel and the lever, I think, is, is kind of either personal preference or convenience. Oddly enough, he's never had a lever and I've never had a wheel. <laughs> so all all of mine have always been levers and you just loosen it up, give it a little tap and it's in. I imagine that a wheel would be more convenient if, you know, if it's smooth adjusting and, you know, and, and you get that contact right away and can do a fine adjustment. I would think that a wheel would be better, but mm-hmm. um, since I don't really change my depth of cut very often, I usually take very light passes no matter what. Right. Um, I don't adjust that setting either. So it, to me, honestly, it wouldn't really make a whole lot of a, uh, a difference. Yeah. No, I with the with the new jointer that I have and all the veneer that I've been making recently. <laughs> uh it's yeah, I have a, a there's a lever on that one also. And it's funny cuz that was one of the the things I was thinking of when I was looking to purchase was wheel or or lever, which which way was I going to go? And I thought yeah. the same thing. I'm like the wheel obviously must be much easier, but now that I I have I, I ended up going with the one that has the lever and and it does it moves real smooth. It's almost like a little bit of a ratcheting effect is what it seems to be. Right. And yeah, it, yeah and it moves up and down really smooth. So in my experience with with the levers, it, it, it seems to be perfectly fine. There, I mean, there's a wheel on the outfeed table, so I guess, but I, I haven't touched that either. I kind of, you know, that that, that took your advice and just kind of, it's just there. <laughs> right. Well, like he says, he wants to know if that's the case and you want to sort of set it and forget it. Why is it so easy to change? Mm-hmm. Um, I would think if they've already done the technology and the milling of the metal pieces and the gears to make the infeed table adjustable and easily adjustable, it's probably more sensible for them to also follow through and do the same thing on the outfeed table. So it's also easy to change. Um, 
the reason I would say they make it so easy though is if you need need to if you ever do need to make an adjustment and it's not easy, you're gonna call them and you're gonna bitch about it. So yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> when you when you do need to change that, even though it's not often. But when you do need to change that outfeed table height, you want it to be easy because it can be very frustrating if it's not. Um, but to address directly, I think if if it's set for the right height and it's your outfeed table is even with your blades, perfect, and keep it locked in for now. But what happens when you change your blades out or you send your blades out for sharpening, when you bring them back and reset them, you're going to have to make some kind of a change, either bringing your blades up to the height of the outfeed table or change your outfeed table's height to the height of the blades. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, yeah. So one one or the other, but either way, you'll be thankful, even if it's only once a year, you're going to be thankful that it is easy to adjust. Right. Actually, I think the reason why they have those adjustments on there is because they knew we were going to do a show about it. Most likely. They, <laughs> so uh, they wanted to help us out. <laughs> they wanted to give us something to talk about, which is very nice of them. Yeah, that, that was the portion of the manual that they like had somebody's girlfriends like, go ahead and have her write that. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah, so, let's, uh, let's move okay, let's along. See. All right. So our next question there. Hey, guys. Love the new podcast. Straight to my question. That's the way I like it. Perfect. Okay. This, there's this saying that you can never have too many clamps or enough clamps, and he loved your segment on the clamp collection. It's a clear that a diversity of choices is important in this trade, hobby, art, whatever you want to call it. Uh, the question is, how do you decide how many clamps uh, to apply to a given glue-up? I see guys like David Marks and The Norm on TV using what seems like 100 clamps on some things, and then maybe only two or th- two to four on others. Uh, so he's wondering about like the theory of good clamping pressure. Uh, why does it matter with modern adhesives? Uh, how much pressure is enough? Uh, third one is uh, how how do you judge the number and or locations of clamps to achieve good clamping pressure on a given glue up? Um, so let's see here. Basically, uh, we'll kind of jump into this uh, for yeah, a second we, here. We can't we can't necessarily go into as much detail as he probably wants on this, but we'll right, quick, yeah. we'll quickly just address the three points that he made. Yeah, exactly. So theory of good clamping pressure. Why does it matter with uh, modern adhesives? Um, well, really, when it comes down to it, you, you want to make sure that the pieces aren't going to move. So, you know, I don't know about theory of, of good clamping pressure, but essentially you just want enough clamping pressure there to hold it in place until everything sets up, basically. That's that's how I take it. Yeah, well, uh, I mean, the thing is, too, he says, why why does it matter with modern adhesives? Well, the, the the whole point is most of these adhesives work best by having a very thin film between the two mating pieces. You don't want a big, you know, goober of glue uh, and a lot of airspace in between the pieces. You want a nice tight fit. So proper clamping pressure is necessary to bring them closer together so that you are left with that thin film. Uh, In fact, some glues, you know, the thinner the film, the better. So, um, and you know, standard wood glue is not a gap filling glue. So if you have a loose fit, and you fill it all up with glue, that's just not going to be a really uh, uh, secure joint. So, <laughs> no. um, yeah, it just matters because that's that's the you know the, the uh, chemistry behind it. That's the way the, the glue works best when it's uh, in a thin layer. Um, but every glue is slightly different. So some glues may not require as much clamping pressure or as tight of a joint. Or some glues, you know, like an epoxy or, uh, you know, some sort of a... Um, well, yeah, epoxy is probably the best example, uh, is a gap filling glue and can, you know, take up a lot of space. So you don't necessarily need as much in the way of clamping pressure if you're using epoxy. But of course, you want enough clamping pressure, like you said, to secure the pieces and bring them together yep. in the way that you want them to look when this piece is locked in place. Yep. 
Yeah, um, absolutely. You know, and a lot of people, I think, have this idea that the more more clamping pressure you put on, the better it is. But that's that's not true. In fact, actually, you'll end up damaging the piece more than anything else. True. I mean, and, I can't yeah. tell you how many, time, how many times I've cranked down so hard on it that you actually will hear the wood start to snap. And then it's like, right. oh, that's not good. <laughs> no, and the thing is, the bottom line, you should never have to hurt your hands on a clamp. If you're doing that, you are tightening too much um, or your joinery is not you know, good enough or not just, well, I don't want to sound demeaning, but your joinery isn't accurate enough that you're using, you know, force and power to, to pull that joint together. They should slide together smooth with a nice layer of glue between them. Um, and yeah, over clamping, if you squeeze out all the glue, then, you know, if there's no place for the glue to go, that's a bad thing too. So you don't want to overdo it, but you do want to get some squeeze out. So like I said, right. um, you know, it it does take a little bit of feel, but if if you're hurting your hands and you're really squeezing, um, you know that might be a little bit too tight. Yeah, and, and here's here's a good kind of a rule of thumb, and, and this is one. It took me the longest time. Kind of embarrassing to admit it, but it took me the longest time to understand it. And it really is that idea that um, if your joinery is 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 not good enough, it really is what it comes down to. If your joinery is is off uh, because you don't quite understand, you know how things should be square or how to get your tools set up. Because for the longest time, I didn't understand that. My table saw blade needs to be square to the tabletop to get really decent cuts from it. Right. And so, therefore, I was, you know, I was using my joints to make, or my joints, I was using my, my clamps to make up for my joinery imperfections. So, it's one of those, another opportunity for you to reevaluate evaluate what you're doing and learn from your mistakes. That's what it really kind of comes down to. Right. Um, yeah. If you, if you got to crank down on there, like you said, with your hand hurts, you need to reevaluate, maybe to figure out what, what you're doing wrong elsewhere. Sure. Yeah. Now his his third point was the number and location. Number and locations. Yep. That you know that's variable depending on the project. Um, it does seem like when you watch those shows that they you know use more than they need to, but it's because they have them. And yep. <laughs> you know, as long as you're not squeezing too hard, I don't think you could ever put too many clamps on a on a a project. Ideal would be something like a vacuum press that puts an even amount of pressure over the entire surface, but that's just not realistic, and in most cases, wouldn't make sense for the application. Um, so usually, I try to keep my clamps anywhere from six to eight inches apart. Um, if you are low on clamps, you could use more wood blocks as calls to, mm -hmm. uh, to, to spread. And that's actually a good idea, no matter what, to spread the pressure over a wider space. So you're not just pinpointing one spot with a lot of pressure that just sort of decreases as it radiates away from that point. Um, but I would actually use, uh, the shows and I haven't seen anything ridiculous. So use those shows as a guideline that that's what you want to maybe aim for and then come up with ways to be more realistic about it and maybe use more calls so that you don't have to use as many clamps. Absolutely. Yeah, I've gotten I've learned to become very creative with the clamps that I have and you know there's there's a million out there really when it comes down to all shapes and sizes but yeah, it, it's really it's a matter of just being very creative and knowing the right the right spots and for me the right spots have always been especially with tabletops i want my ends to stay in place so i'll put yeah. more pressure at the ends and then try to get it towards the middle but um sure. yeah if i if i had as many as if i could possibly want my whole shop would be filled with clamps <laughs> right right yeah i mean it would, well and i I've, I've got a pretty pretty good sized wall so i can't really complain um but there have been times when that wall gets cleared Yes, <laughs> um, you know, and and just another thing, if you if you do have a visibility of the entire joint all the way across, and of course we're talking about any generic joint, but I'm thinking in terms like a tabletop or something, um, if you don't see an even amount of glue squeeze out along the whole length, 
you may have a problem with, you know, uh, different amounts of pressure. Of course, you may have just added more glue in certain areas, but you also, you know, want to aim for a nice, even glue squeeze out all the way across the joint. And that, you know, that's your indicator that you have enough pressure when you see those droplets of squeeze out. Absolutely. Cool. So uh, we can move on to uh, Gordon's email. You know, when I was in college, I was in a band called Friends of Gordon. Oh, hey. <laughs> Not really sure why we decided on that name, but... Um, well, that, so that kind of came around full circle. <laughs> yeah, so Gordon's coming back, you know, and we're already friends, and he didn't know it. Nice. Um, okay, so he says, uh, good day from Australia. Uh, great, Great podcast, guys. Um I'm really working on my Australian accent, and I'm. Just I can tell it's it's, it's starting to get there. At it. <laughs> I got to keep practicing. Uh, he says he looks forward to the podcast almost as much as he did the Ricky uh, Gervais podcast a while back. Um, <laughs> I don't know if everybody knows who he is, but he's pretty damn funny. Yes, he is. Uh, on to my question. I've been thinking of trying to do some decorative inlay on a coffee tabletop. I'm a novice woodworker and have read about how wood expands across the grain and so on and was worried about what would happen to the inlay or parts of it, uh, which will be going in all different directions. As the underlying substrate, i.e. the tabletop, moves and its moisture content changes. I intend to use an oil-only finish on the table, by the way. Uh, am I worrying too much about the issue? Um, this is actually pretty... Uh, you know, common concern because it, it makes sense. The wood's going to move and here you are embedding something cross grain and, you know, all, all which directions into the wood and what's going to happen to it. Um, fortunately, a very thin inlay and a small strip of inlay is going to move with the wood. The good thing is wood has a little bit of flexibility to it. And especially, you know, think about when we're, um, you know, some of these complex handrails that are made in houses and uh, some of these crazy bent laminations. When you make a piece of wood very thin, all of a sudden it's very flexible and very pliable. So wood can actually be pulled and stretched and, and sort of, you know, over the course of time, very slowly, uh, is almost malleable to an extent. So um, a very thin inlay will not really be affected by tabletop movement because most likely it's going to stretch and pull right along with the top. Okay. So that's uh, oh, pretty okay. straightforward. So really, no concern yeah. there. I would I would give you the green light. Go ahead and do your inlays, and don't worry about it. Sweet. I was, I was kind of waiting for a little bit more on that one, but yeah, you're right. That is no, pretty it's, straightforward. it's pretty straightforward. There's not a whole lot to it. So uh, I mean, okay. I guess if you're doing a big, giant, massive inlay, you may have some issues, uh, mm -hmm. but it doesn't seem like that's what he's talking about. So okay, cool. Yeah, nice. Yeah, I think we uh, we had a concise little show here today. Yeah, definitely. I did. This is definitely working out. So yeah, packed a lot. You know. Yeah, um, keep those questions and coming in, everybody. You know, we, we love getting all your questions. So, Absolutely. as always, you know, if you have comments, questions, suggestions, preferably more questions than anything else, uh, or yeah. just, you just want to, you know, send us free stuff, uh, also, we can't get that one. <laughs> always have to put out the free stuff plug. <laughs> That's right. But uh, you can always reach us at woodtalkonline at gmail.com, and we will do our best to, if we're not going to get up on the show, one of us will try to answer, but we can't guarantee it. I know I'm pretty busy with my show, and Mark, you're definitely busy with yours, and oh, your real life too. <laughs> oh, I have one of those? Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I, I keep hearing this rumor of mine. <laughs> right. And also, don't forget that we have that new feature now at, at, the, at the website, the voicemail, and by all means, it is so easy that even I can do it. So all you do is you just need a microphone and plug it into your computer and click on the button and it, it, it walks you through it and you just leave us a nice voicemail and you get to have your, your voice heard just like Ski did today. Yep, we'll make you famous. Yes, we will. But <laughs> don't you dare take it away from us. Yeah, don't, don't step on our fame. 
<laughs> exactly. All right, guys. Well, it was a it was a great week, and we will uh, catch you next week. Absolutely. Take care, everybody. See ya.